exceptional the way that she's helped build what God's doing here. Now, uh, insecurity is an everyday experience for human beings. Uh, and as kids, you think, we think we're invincible until some things happen in life and we realize we're not. Things break, we break. Uh, growing up, I can remember my mum, she used to say a few stock phrases that she'd repeat as mothers do. And one of them, she would always say, boom, it's very loud. Uh, she would always say, life is fragile. Uh, or she'd say, this isn't, life isn't a dress rehearsal. There's no dress rehearsal for life. And she'd say that normally after we'd see something on the news, some tragedy around the world, or we'd hear about some local boy in our village who'd been knocked off his bike and injured. She'd say, life is fragile. Life isn't a dress rehearsal. And I remember on one occasion, I was going to the shops with my brother and sister. I was about six or seven, across the road, without really looking. My brother then, because he was four at the time, copied me, ran across the road and got hit by a motorbike. And I spent a few days in, in hospital recovering from that. Uh, it's one of the only times I can remember seeing my dad cry as he just grieved the sadness of the situation, the fragility and vulnerability of life got hit home to him, hit home to us that day. But life's insecurity and fragility isn't only restricted to our mortality and our life expectancy. Life is fragile and full of insecurity across the board. We've all felt the strain, no doubt, of financial pressures and need to survive. We've, we've felt the insecurity around our health. When your health goes, you're suddenly aware of how vulnerable you are and how fragile life is. We, we know the insecurity around key relationships, the heartbreak they can cause us. Insecurities perhaps caused by habits that we're struggling with and find it hard to get free from. Insecurity of, of job security. And actually across the world, people engage in all kinds of strange or or normal everyday practices to try to forget about life's insecurity and also to try to deal with life's insecurity. I heard of a couple of festivals this week in India, uh, one called the Made Made Snana Festival, where poorer people in the community um, get together in this festival and lie on the floor and roll around on top of the leftover food of richer members of the society as a way of trying to stave off ill health believe that they'll be made more healthy as a result of that. Well, there's a, an even more bizarre thing that, that goes on in one part of the world, known as, a, I don't know what to call it, other than the baby throwing competition, or not competition, festival, where they throw babies off of, of a balcony 50 foot high and catch them on, like, essentially a big bed sheet, um, it, believing that as they do that, the baby's going to have a greater chance of becoming intelligent and being endowed with great intelligence. What are they doing when they do that? I should say that no baby's ever been injured in the producing of this festival, um, but it's odd nonetheless. Why do we do that? We do that because life's insecure. We want to do what we can to try to get some guarantees in life. There's only two guarantees, isn't there? Mark Twain tells us that. Death and taxes. Um, there's the only two certainties in life, and we want a few more. So we throw babies off buildings, and we roll around on the leftover food of rich people in the hope that we can stave off some of life's insecurities. The average person has a vocabulary of around 100,000 words, I'm told. Um, 100,000 words, and of those 100,000 word, words that we speak, 120 of them 
um, are what are known as pronoun type words. Words like he, she, I, we, they, it, it, uh, other words like that. 120 words of our 100,000 words, and yet those 120 words make up 60% of all the words that we speak. And the most commonly spoken word is the word I. I. And actually studies have been done to show that the more use, it's quite a, a useful indicator of status in a society apparently. Those of lower status in a society use the word I a lot more than those in higher status in society. In higher status people in society use the words like you and we, outward pronouns, whereas lower status people use I apparently. And studies have been done again to show how overuse of the word I can lead to problems surrounding your health. Because being overly concentrated and focused on I creates insecurity because we were never made, we're not strong enough as individuals to produce security just by looking at ourselves. So life's fraught with insecurity and then you consider God, our relationship with him. Is he angry with us? What does he think? Why won't he bless me? Why is life difficult? What do I need to do to impress him? Is he pleased with me when I die? Who knows when I'm going to die? Will I be with God? Is there a God? What happens next? Oh, a few weeks ago, just, just for fun, I suppose, and a strange word to use, but for fun, I went to um, Seaford Cemetery and uh, just looked at the grave tomb, the headstones. Age 22, age 25, age 37, age 54. Death doesn't care how old you are. No respecter of persons. It's a sobering experience to just walk around a graveyard, isn't it? And to read the expressions of love for these people who've gone. You don't know when you're going to die. Never know how old you're going to be, whether you're going to have a long life or a short life. Life is insecure. Oprah Winfrey, the chat show host, she uh, has interviewed thousands of people, among them celebrities, the rich and the famous, the great and the good of society. She said that all people, whoever they are, have in common an overriding question that eats away at them. The question, am I enough? Am I enough? We live an annoying sense of our lack and insecurity, whether we're conscious of it or not. And actually, when people present to us ways of dealing with our insecurity, maybe strange ones like throwing babies on balconies, there's something about that appeal, something about that, that has an allure or a draw or an appeal to us. And we're going to look at some of those things together today as we get into Paul's letter to the Galatians. He is at his most ferocious and furious in these verses that we're going to read, the famous verses that Christians love to read and recite and sing about. And they're also packed with good truth for us that can help us in our quest for security and joy and freedom. So we're going to read from Galatians 5, verses 1 to 12. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. 
Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one that is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. What a great bit of trash talking. I wish those who are causing you trouble would just cut the whole thing off. We'll explain why he used that particular insult of all things. But we're going to talk today about the allure of, of slavery, the allure of our strength and the offence of the cross. And see what God has to say to us through his word. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom. We all want freedom. And over the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about this freedom we're going to look at freedom from, what God's freed us from, and then next week, what God has freed us for. This week, freedom from. Let's talk about the allure of slavery then. So Paul says in verse 1, for freedom, that Christ has set us free. For freedom, which means if you're not free, there is hope for you, because that's what Jesus does, what Jesus has come for. He's come to set you free so that you can... No freedom from outside oppression, from internal obstructions, from habits and addictions. Jesus comes to bring freedom. That's what he does. For freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the reason that Paul would need to say stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery seems to me, the reason seems to me because people were being tempted to submit again to a yoke of slavery. People were being drawn to slavery again. Like, like those old sci-fi films like Star Wars. There was like slavery, Paul was saying, has like a tractor beam effect on people. That oppression, a heavy yoke of burden, is pulling people away from their freedom and enslaving them again. So Paul says, you must resist, you must stand firm. Why, then, would people be drawn towards slavery? What is it about slavery that has an allure that Paul would need to say, you need to resist it? But we're insecure. We're vulnerable. To the sick, any medicine will do. Any offer of being well will help us, right? Or to the recently freed, um, the recently released slave, any master is better than no master. You see it with people who've been institutionalized for a long time, or been incarcerated, been in, in prison for a long time. They come out, and they don't know what to do. They're vulnerable, they're fragile. So used to being told when to eat, when to sleep, what to do every day, and now suddenly to be released from prison, there's a freedom that's terrifying. And any master will do to stave off that freedom. There's comfort to be had in being a victim. It's a comfortable thing to, to believe of yourself that you can't help something actually provides us some comfort. I can't help it. Oh, what do I do? It's just who I am. I'm just obnoxious, or I'm just addicted, or I'm just whatever it is. I can't help it. Paul says that's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So you can help it, but there's a comfort in believing, no, I, I can't help it. For those who are enslaved, there's a, a freedom from responsibility that's attached to that. I mean, it's the job of my slave owner to tell me when to eat. Oh, I can relax. 
And it's also, you get a feeling of being blameless. It's not my fault, I'm just doing what I'm told. I mean, you see this on the, uh, the, the TV show, The Apprentice, all the time. Uh, the, the team leader will decide something, and the rest of the team will keep their mouths shut, because they know that if it goes south, it'll be his head on the block and not mine. So they just abdicate. There's an allure to slavery, an allure to being mastered by something, an attraction to it. And it's to those people who've recently been freed and are free in Christ that Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm because the tyrant that is the law, so in Paul's in the church here, these people have been led around by rules and regulations and the Jewish law, and they're being told to become a proper Christian, you need to obey these things, among them is circumcision, but you need to obey these things if you want to be a proper Christian. Paul says, listen, a tyrant has gone. The law is, is over. If you're a Christian, you don't need to obey the law anymore. But tyranny still abounds. So be careful. Stand firm in your freedom. Rather like in Zimbabwe at the moment, a tyrant has resigned. But stand firm, Zimbabweans, because tyranny still abounds. There are still others, those who would want to enslave you again. And sometimes the second slave owner or dictator is worse than the first. There's a need to stand firm. But what does it look like then to stand firm? How do we stand firm? I get it, Paul, I must stand firm in freedom. You've said it, I get it. How, 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 how do I do that? Well, a few things. I think standing firm looks like, um, looks like being aware of our nature, just being aware of who we are. It looks like declaring truth, and it looks like making wise choices. Let's just look at that. Number one, firstly, be aware of your nature. Know your nature. Know what you're like. Know what we're like as people. At your, at your insecurity, my insecurity, our brokenness, it is drawn to a measure. We love law. We love measuring sticks. You know, it's, to have someone appraise you is, again, it's comforting. And we love that. So we're drawn to things. Whether it's a charismatic, dynamic leader who can lead a whole people astray, or whether it's a romantic love interest that can take you off course from what you wanted. We love people who can have mastery over us. I mean, you see it with, with kids. They, I mean, with kids, it's fun, right? Because you, you put a, a door frame and you draw lines on it and you go, look, you're growing. Isn't it fun? Yes, you were that high and now you're this high. As adults, it's less fun. We call it um, job appraisals or offsets. It's not fun. I'm not lining up to go, oh, measure me. Am I outstanding or am I needs improvement? And then there are so many things in life that operate by that same nature. That's why Paul says to the church, you were running well, who cut in on you? Who did you allow to appraise your Christianity and give you some rules that you need to keep? Because as Christians, as like everybody else, we love laws. We love it if someone can just tell me what to do. Fundamentalism has an appeal to it because fundamentalism makes everything black or white. Life isn't like that. And certainly as a Christian, we've now been free from the law, we're given the Spirit, so we don't need to live like that. So, a Christian example. I remember years ago, I was uh, in this gap year with several other people, similar age to me, I was about 18, 21, 21 at the time. And on one particular occasion, we had uh, like a seminar with a, an older, wiser Christian guru type guy. And we got to ask this person questions about their life. So everybody wrote down questions and put them in a hat to make it anonymous and things like that. And question after question this guy pulled out were questions along the lines of, tell me how to behave, please, sir. So the questions were, how much alcohol am I allowed to drink on a night out? Second question was, 
Am I allowed to watch Harry Potter? Another question. Is it wrong for a Christian to smoke? Another question. Like, what time should I get up in the morning? What should I have for dinner? What's the right food for a Christian to eat? Question after question after question. We think, young, naive, silly people. But we all want that. I want someone to tell me this is the right thing to do. And the guy that was answering the questions was very wise. He, he said, these are conscience issues. I can give you wisdom, but you need to be cautious because your nature loves slavery. It loves rules and regulations. It loves to be told what to do. The second thing then, so the first thing is be aware of your insecurity and brokenness. This is how we stand firm. Secondly, we need to declare truth. It's not enough to just listen to truth. You need to declare it. You need to speak it as well. Every day of your life, every day of our lives, we are influenced by and bombarded by lies. Things that aren't true. Things that tell you where happiness and fulfillment and heaven can be found. That's what an advert is, isn't it? An advert on the telly is basically, this is heaven. By this, you'll receive bliss. And we sit there, absorbing advert after advert after advert. Or if not adverts, then we create celebrities out of people who, I don't know, have, have done impressive things or sometimes have not done impressive things. And we allow them to tell us what is the desirable life. And we sit there, soaking this up all the time, subliminally, unconsciously, subconsciously, to the point that we, we believe these things. They get under our skin. We believe that true happiness is... True happiness is a cup of Horlicks or something. True happiness is a mug of milk. True happiness is a, a new latest razor by Gillette. Or true happiness means I must have the latest PlayStation. I must, I must, I must. Because I've seen this shiny advert and it has convinced me. The answer to that, the way we stand firm as Christians, is that we declare truth. Declare truth. Because all of us who are free in Christ... We like to listen to the lies and remember how our captivity was, but we distort it and think, oh, things were better then. And the, the most striking example of this in the Bible is, in, is the story of the Exodus. When God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved in Egypt with physical <coughs> slave masters who beat them and made them work hard, having been freed from slavery, they're in the desert and they start grumbling because they say, we miss our cucumber sandwiches. That's actually in the Bible. They say, I would like to go back to Egypt because in Egypt, we had cucumber sandwiches. And you're like, you were enslaved in Egypt. You had people who beat you and made you work night and day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we had cucumber sandwiches and I miss my cucumber sandwiches. Now, for you, I doubt it's cucumber sandwiches, but it's probably something else. And I see this in myself. I want this person to like me. Their opinion of me matters, so I hold back from speaking truth. Or I shy away from declaring the gospel for fear that I might get their disapproval. Funny, this, this past week, on Thursday, I was uh, in, in a cafe in town and chatting to a guy who runs it. He said he was going to talk to us about something, and I said, oh, can I pray for you about that? And he said, oh, what do you mean? I said, oh, I just want to ask Jesus to heal you. He said, oh, okay. So I just put my hand, I said, oh, it's like he's healed, and there it is. And he was like, oh, thanks a lot. I said, no worries. We were just chatting, and we talked about coffee and very 
there's, there's a piece that just went on our way. And I walked out of the coffee shop going, come on, I've got it. I've got this Christian life down. I'm like, fear, I don't feel fear anymore. I just live now. I'm free in Christ. Uh, and actually, I, if I'm honest, I think it was just the two cups of cappuccino I had that made me extra bold. Because the next day, I'm, I'm, I run an after school club on Fridays, and I was there with one of the guys, and at the end, we're just chatting, and he said, oh, there's a problem with my knee, and I was like, oh, I should pray for him. I just thought, no, I'm not going to, because he'll, what, 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 what will he think? What will he say? What, 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 I don't know. In that moment, I believe the lie that his opinion of me matters far more than God's approval of me. And we live like that, because we're absorbing messages all the time, what's matters to us, what we need to do to stand firm. It's not just listen to lies, but instead declare truth. I renounce the lie that, whatever it might be. I renounce the lie that I need this person to like me in order for me to be valuable. I renounce the lie that I must be seen to be successful in the eyes of others for me to be loved. I, whatever it is for you, I don't know. You, do, you stand firm by declaring truth. And thirdly, you stand firm by making changes your life. Many Christians experience the life drama of sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, I sin, I mustn't do that again, stop, try hard, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess, over and over again until we think, this freedom that Christ set me free for isn't very free, I feel more enslaved than I am free. And the way of breaking the sin, confessing, 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 confess cycle is to stand firm by making changes. Standing firm isn't an accidental activity. You watch some of the rugby at the moment. These men are standing firm to resist one another, and all of them are doing it intentionally and robustly. And sometimes in your Christian life, it requires grit and determination to stand firm against Lies, habits, nature, whatever it might be. You know, we've all been swimming. I don't know if you've ever been to the swimming pools where they have um, what they call a lazy river, where you get the current, that's kind of propelled current underwater, and it blows you, pushes you around. And it's lovely. You can put your feet up and just go around the lazy river. It is fun until you stand up and try to go against it. And then it's like, I can't get out. I'm stuck in this lazy river. And I had a friend who I haven't seen for 10 years, and the last I saw him was in a lazy river, and I just figured he's still there. I don't know. Lazy rivers are fun until you want to break free, until you want to get out, because you have to resist. Or if you've been driving in a rut for so long, it's going to require effort and determination to get out of that rut that you've been stuck in. So it requires changes, because there are things that, that enslave us and rob us of our joy and our freedom. So what does it look like? I suppose I'll make myself vulnerable. I'll go first. Uh, several years ago, when I was a late teen and early 20, I was hooked on pornography. It might be shocking to say as a pastor in a room like this. But it dominated my habits, my thought life. Uh, it affected how I related to members of the opposite sex. It got under my skin. It's altered things ever since, to be honest with you. Sexual sin is, someone once said, like a snake bite. You might be healed of it, but the venom lives in you for a long time. And for, for several years, I, would, I felt like I was enslaved to this sin, confessing, confessing, confess, unable to break free. Was I loved? Yes. Was I Christian? Yes. Was I heaven bound? Yes. But I was stuck. So what did I do? The 
don't struggle with it now, or although I should say I don't watch pornography now. I think I'm aware of the weakness in me as a result of those habits I cultivated as a teenager. That means that now I have to make deliberate choices and changes to the way that I think and live to guard myself against an area of weakness as a result of poor choices in the past. So for me, a journey towards freedom from this started when I told someone else and confessed it. I had to humble myself. I had to literally humiliate myself in front of my peers and over and over again confess various struggles and things that I was wrestling with. I then had to go through a period of renouncing the lies that this, these images were telling me. The lie that um, sexual gratification outside of God's plan is going to make me happier than trusting God. I had to renounce the lie that women existed for my pleasure, that women weren't sisters, that they were just objects. Those were lies implicitly I was believing by my behaviour. Renounce those lies and declare the truth. And allow God's truth to wash over me regularly. To the point to this day, I know that I, I still would regularly talk to my friends about my areas of weakness. I have to humble myself and remain humiliated. This past week I was with some guys and we were just talking about areas of struggle and weakness and saying we need to hold each other accountable, we need to be robust with this. This is what standing firm looks like. It means changing things. It means throwing things away that are a source of sin and distraction for us. It means burning things. It means deleting people from our phones that cause us to stumble. It means, I don't know what it is for you, but it means making deliberate choices. I know there are TV shows that I would like to watch but cannot watch because I know what they contain and I know that's not going to help me. And there's a deliberate part of how I stand firm. That's what Paul said. You've been called for freedom. Now stand firm. Because there are things that will enslave you. And that's how you grow. You grow by standing firm. You grow by inviting challenge. And it's hard because we have an accuser who would want to lie to us. His lies have an allure. But we've been set free from it. Now we stand firm. So that's the first thing, that's uh, the longest thing, is that we've been called to freedom. We must uh, resist the allure of slavery. The second thing is the allure of good deeds. Let's just read together from Galatians 5, verse 2 to 5. Paul says this, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So victimhood has an allure, needs to be resisted, but so does strength and power have an allure, and we must resist that as well. Because we deal with our insecurity by looking sometimes to our own ability to give us reason for strength. Because the, the swing from I'm just a victim and a slave to actually now I'm in power and I can do what I want and I can, I can do things to impress God is an equal but opposite error. We love when faced with challenges to tick it off a list, say done, fixed, sorted, completed, draw a line through it, phew, I'm in charge. And that's what was going on in this church here. These people have come in and boasting in their religious deeds and saying, listen guys, to become properly religious or properly Christian, you need to get circumcised. That'll make you a proper Christian. 
These days, we're all grateful that we don't need to get circumcised. But have you ever wondered why circumcision? It's in the, in the Old Testament and some other ancient cultures um, told their people that they needed to be circumcised in order to be right with the gods, or in the case of the Jewish people, to be identified and marked out as belonging to the, the Christian God, Yahweh. So why circumcision? You ever wondered that? It's the kind of question you might sit around at night scratching your head saying, should we watch Strictly Come Dancing or should we discuss why circumcision? Well, I wonder about these things. And I think the best, the best explanation I've found and come across for why circumcision has to do with sex and power. Let me explain. In ancient cultures, as in modern ones, men derived their primary source of boasting and power from their children. To be in the ancient world, to not have any children was to be insecure, to be vulnerable, to be weak. To have lots of children was to be a patriarch and powerful and strong and noble and to think, after I die, I've got these young ones who will take on my name. There was a reason for boasting then in their offspring. And sex and a man's virility has often been a source of power and a reason for boasting. Phallic images in ancient cultures are, are in every ancient culture. Men boast about those things. And so God said to his people, I want you to make a cut in the part of you that causes you the most reason for boasting and confidence. So that you will display to the world that your confidence does not come from your own power and strength, but from me and your trust in me, which I think is why he taught them circumcision. And men, today we still boast in our strength. For a man to be weak is to be insecure. And so men pride themselves and work hard at trying to be strong. Young men go to the gym and work out. Older men get their strength and reason for boasting perhaps from their job or from the amount of people that they employ or are in charge of. Or for younger men, again, perhaps from this culture of banter. I'm more powerful than you if I can rip you down with an insult or some sarcasm. For women, I don't think the issue is so much around strength and power as it is around perfection. For a woman, to be weak isn't too big a problem, but to be imperfect is a source of shame. For a woman, then, the temptation is to do everything in her power to look perfect in the eyes of others. Others. I'm the woman who is both a businesswoman and a successful mother and home interior decorator type and I have 17 children and my hair's never out of place and my husband's always satisfied and always happy. And to allow any mask of perfection to slip for a woman is a source of shame. So women boast in perfection, men boast in strength. I read a book recently about motherhood, in case it ever happens to me, um, where the lady was saying that she notices in herself that on top of cleaning the house and doing everything she can, from time to time she likes to bake cookies with her kids. Um, because it's nice to bake cookies with her kids. But she also sees in her own heart that part of the motive for baking these cookies is again to present an image of perfection so that when people come around the house, they'll see 17 or six, I think she was six children, six children all neatly dressed and you know, tidy in a, a perfectly kept house and they'll smell cookies and think, wow, what a woman. She can do it all. So she says in this book, People who bake cookies are self-righteous. <laughs> so that was quite amusing. Um, not always true, of course. Paul says if you're going to get your security from that, 
chop the whole thing off. Essentially, is what he says in this bit. For men, if you're going to give your security from your strength, chop off the source of strength for you, whatever it is. A law keeper must keep the whole law. Otherwise, Jesus is of no advantage to you. And if you're someone who's going to get his security, her security from strength or perfection, Jesus is of no advantage to you. You see, moral reformation is different from gospel transformation. Moral reformation, working hard to improve yourself, only ever produces weakness. Let me show you this. This is an iron bar. An iron bar, when bent out of shape, needs to be bent back. The Bible says as human beings that we have been bent in on ourselves. We are those who are insecure and self-focused. I is our most commonly used word. So what do you do to something that's, that's bent and broken? Well, you use every bit of muscle you can, and I can't, to bend it because I'm not strong and that's okay, I don't feel shame, but I do bake cookies with my kids, so that's okay. If I could, if I could bend this back to straight, in bending it, I actually would have weakened it. And to bend it a few more times would snap it. Because to bend it is to break some of the fibres inside the metal, and it actually weakens it. When we try to improve ourselves through self-effort, we actually weaken ourselves. Paul says there's no reason for confidence in that. That's how you want to live. You've got to work hard to keep everything together, keep all those masks in place, because the moment one slips, you're in trouble. So how do we change? The gospel brings change, and brings change by offending us. In Galatians 5, verse 11, let's put that verse up on the screen, where Paul says this, if I still preach circumcision while I'm being persecuted. In that case, he says, the offence of the cross has been removed. Christianity, when properly understood, is an offensive message. And it's not offensive for the reason, in our, for the reason people in our society think it's offensive, because of a stance on a moral issue. It is deeply offensive because the cross the, literally the crux of the Christian message is a message that says to human beings who think they're strong, to human beings who think they're impressive, who can convince themselves that they're perfect, the cross says you're powerless. It says you're weak. It says you're enslaved by your own stupidity and your sin. So much so that Jesus had to do this. One writer, a man named Dane Orland, says in his book, Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all of our religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. <coughs> Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by submitting, subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. The way you deal with your insecurity, is it by discipline? Is it by strength? Is it by changing your desires? Is it by being absorbed? Is it by submitting your will? Is it by ignoring your doubts? Is it by doing your duty? Christian message is you deal with your insecurity by acknowledging your failure. I mean, that problem is going on in this church is that they are doing everything they can to stave off their insecurity. If I work hard enough, if I try hard enough, I will be secure and loved. Paul says that only ever produces slavery and weakness. 
only in the message of the cross you receive freedom and security from God. I heard of one pastor who was at a party recently when a guy who was talking to rather bizarre comment. He was talking to this guy, he said, I pastor this church, and the person he was speaking to said to him, oh, I know some people from your church. Come to think of it, they're all failures. He said, it's a weird thing to say. They're all failures, these people I know who go to your church. And if you're a pastor, that's going to offend you, because I mean, we, we love the people who are part of our church. We love our friends, they're our family. But this guy's response was brilliant. He said, you know what, you're right, they are failures. The only difference between you and them is that they know they're failures and you haven't realised it yet. <laughs> Which I thought was true. And a great put down. <laughs> that's what the cross says. The cross says you are so wicked and so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. You know, we get surprised when there are, I mean, this is, in our news cycles in recent weeks, there's been what, the Westminster scandals, there's, Harvey Weinstein, and it seems to be every different month there's a new part, part of society that are being accused of abuse. And, and our society is quite strange because it gets, it, the way it reacts is with surprise and horror. And of course, we're right to react with horror. It's abhorrent what people do to, to vulnerable, weaker people using their power. But our society is surprised. And what's odd is that the message of our society is, hey guys, we're nothing more than evolved animals. But guys, don't behave like an animal. You know, uh, what? We're nothing more than evolved animals, and then we get surprised and annoyed that people behave like animals. The Christian message says, well, you might be an evolved animal, but it says, you have been endowed with the image of God. God has put his life in you. You're different from the animals because of that. But you're also sinful, and you're broken, and you're wicked, and you're unable to save yourself. So repent and express your need of God. We sing songs and we say, oh, I'm, I'm not weak, I'm the captain of my own destiny, I'm the master of my own soul. Jesus says, no, you're, you're dumb sheep. And one of his most famous stories, the parable of the lost sheep. He said, there was a farmer who had to hunt a sheep and he lost one. So he left the 99 to go after the one, and Jesus was teaching us about God's love for the one. But how does the one lost sheep get found? It gets found by being a dumb sheep and just buying. Because the farmer hears it and goes, oh, bah, oh, there's a sheep. I've rescued the sheep. Many of us are uncomfortable being sheep. We don't want to be shepherds. <laughs> we want to be kings. We want to be impressive, strong, powerful people. But with those who are bent out of shape and to work hard, is only to repair us, is only to weaken us. So what do you do to something that's better? How does the gospel transform us in a way that's different from moral reformation? The way you repair metal like this is by heating it up. Once you heat it up, it becomes malleable. You can manipulate it. In the right hand, something like that can be turned into something quite beautiful. What was just bent and turned in on itself, now becomes something of beauty because of the heat that was applied and the skill of the, of the blacksmith. And if you're really good, if you're a really good blacksmith, you can create something even more remarkable, even more beautiful. The human heart is bent, it's turned in on itself. Trying to work hard to repair yourself is only to produce weakness. So how, what do we do? 
of God's love for you. You need to respond by repenting and turning away from your sin and asking God to help you. Not by trying to fix yourself, but by asking Him. And as you do, this becomes true of you. So let's read these and then the next line will be some truth for us. I know for some of us this will be quite difficult because for, for many of you, you've believed for a long time that you're a failure and insecure and abandoned. And so we need to stand firm. We need to dig deep, we need to resist the lies that we feel. Let's read this together. I renounce the lie that I am guilty, unprotected, alone, or abandoned, because in Christ I am totally secure. God says that I am free from condemnation. I am assured that God works for my good in all circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me. And I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am confident that God will complete the good work you started in me. Hallelujah. Let's stand to our feet.